Blog Talk Radio. Intersections Matches Talk Radio, a monthly holistic lifestyle show focused on the continual evolution into the best versions of our authentic selves. This is Jessbina, your host. I'm the founder of Intersections Match, the only matchmaking and dating coaching company focused on South Asian singles throughout North America. As a dating coach and matchmaker, I'm always interested in fresh perspectives from authors, researchers, and experts Tell me to provide unparalleled service to our clients. And I'm very excited to welcome author and marriage and family therapist, Pat Love, to our show today. I had the pleasure of shooting a Your Tango Expert video series with Pat in Dallas and thought she'd have great insights for all of you. Now, Pat has authored three books entitled Hot Monogamy, The Emotional Incest, Incest Syndrome, and The Truth About Love. She's been a guest on many national and local TV and radio programs, including Oprah and the Today Show. She's a past president of the International Association for Marriage and Family Counselors and a founding member of the National Academy. On today's show, we will be discussing Pat's insights regarding relationship patterns. Welcome to the show, Pat. Thank you. I'm happy to be here, Jasbina. And, you know, I think we cut off. And it, tell me, you're a founding member of the National Academy of, and can you tell me exactly the, the name? And I apologize. I think we cut off the uh, the name of your uh, academy. What, yeah, what is the name the, of the It's actually the International Association of Marriage and Family Counselors. It's just a long, long oh, name. Okay. <laughs> and okay, probably the wonderful. Fa- oh, you know, I, yeah, yeah. And my, my girlfriend and I founded the Austin Family Institute many years ago. So family and relationships and marriage and and dating has always been my specialty throughout my career. Excellent. Well, I know our listeners are so excited to hear all your insights from that breadth of experience and um, expertise. Now, you know, I thoroughly enjoyed reading your book, The Truth About Love. And in your book, you discuss in depth the various stages of love. And Uh I'm hoping you can identify those different stages and share some insights um, regarding the stages with our listeners. And they can definitely yeah. get into it more with your book. But just to give them sort of a, a brief overview of that, that would be. I, I think that's really important because love does go through stages, and we're very familiar mm-hmm. with the first stage, which is that falling in love or romantic love or infatuation, limerence stage. We're very familiar with that. But I think what's important about that stage is the last word, stage. It does have an arc, it does have a beginning, it does have a peak, and it does have an end. And couples who say, well, we fell in love and we've always been in love, are the ones who, after that stage ends, really have the skills to move on to attachment or connection or mature love or vintage love, whatever word you want to call that ultimate stage of long-lasting love. 
But infatuation is an altered state of consciousness. And I think we often don't even know the person we're with until after that stage passes. Now, it's an important stage because we all love falling in love. We want to feel that chemistry, the butterflies in the stomach, the attraction, the intensity. We all want that opportunity to feel the high, the magic of those beginning those beginning days and months. But I think it's important to know that you really don't know who you're with until that stage passes and you move on to what I just simply call the post-rapture stage. Because that that is it is important that we know about three to six months you get this high, but from okay. research we we're very aware that eighteen months to two years into a relationship, you go back to the normal person you've always been. I mean, blood samples will be different. Your the way you think will be different. Your defenses w- that were lowered during infatuation will now come back up. And so couples often say, well, you used to want to be uh, romantic with me. You used to talk to me without being asked. You used to take time away from work for me. And all of that is true. But it was driven by those wonderful chemicals that give you that euphoria in the beginning stage. But nature has designed us so that, yes, we get together, we meet, mate, and feel like procreating, but that is a stage because if we stayed in that stage, who would go to work? Who would take care of the household chores? You know. Uh-huh. So, so anyway, that that yeah. that is just one stage. Okay. Okay. Wonderful. And I know we'll we'll probably touch on the others as we go throughout, but just awareness of that is so key. I think, right? To know that it's there's nothing wrong with somebody going through those stages. In fact, it's to be expected. So I think that yes. awareness is. Um, really important. Um, you know, an anecdote from your book, The Truth About Love, caught my eye. And I would love if you would share with our listeners um, the anecdote of a happily married woman who told you she divorced and remarried her husband four times in 22 years. Tell us yes. about what, what was happening there. Tell us about that. Well, you know, it, I think it really goes back to your idea, your your interest in the stages that we mm-hmm. often think that love is that falling in love period and and the truth is that's simply a stage that's you know limerence that's euphoria in fact many cultures consider that romantic love period simply as a force to be dealt with they don't consider it the major criteria for a long-term relationship. Many cultures believe you find a good match and then you create love, that you expect love to follow. And and we mm-hmm. know, and so what would happen is they would fall in love, hit the wall, divorce. Fall in love, hit the wall. And what I mean by hit the wall is that you run the course of that natural free high where mm-hmm. everything takes effort. I often say, I think I said it in the book, going to Walmart is an existential experience when you're falling <laughs> in love. It uh-huh. takes no uh-huh. effort. And so yeah. this was a couple who didn't have the skills to get past that second stage, which is post-rapture. Because in the post-rapture stage, a person who may be 
you know, a workaholic goes back to working all the time. A person who's really a complainer starts complaining all the time. Doesn't mean you have to stay that way, but until you learn that you have to take time for your relationship, not just to work, until you learn that behind every criticism is a desire and you have to express the desire, not the criticism, until you develop these skills, you can't get back to love. And so you may have a perfectly good partner, but if you don't have the skills, and this is the third stage, which which is discovery, if you Mm -hmm. haven't discovered what it is that keeps you connected, that keeps you in that loving space, then you're never going to get to the fourth stage, which is connection. So, so, you know, for some of us, we grew up in a healthy family. We saw many, many models of our families, you know, showing us how to show love and receive love and be best friends and confidants and playmates and financial partners and social partners. We saw it all modeled, and we learned it that way. And our parents were good enough. They were there for us. You know, they came, they protected us, they showed us love, they gave us boundaries, you know, they gave us that love and protection that all kids need. But there are many, many, you know, if you had that, then it just feels natural to go into a loving relationship. But for many of us, we had interruptions in that process. We had a parent who died or we had a divorce or we had a preoccupied parent or a parent that maybe was alcoholic or abusive or angry or didn't have the skills him or herself so we have these deficits but the good news is we can learn it and so some a lot of us were born you know we came up and we were lucky we were in the lucky gene club we grew up in <laughs> where where we learned it but the rest of us have to learn it maybe as adults but like you say your job my job the good news is we can learn it, and the skills are out there. Absolutely. So it's not what one begins with is not what one needs to end with. So that that is the most important. And I'm wondering what are what are some of the most common reasons over the years um, that you believe people come to seek couples counseling to begin with? Yeah, yeah. Common patterns yeah. that you see. You know, uh, yeah, the common. Well, the most the most common reason why people seek help is they say we don't communicate i often think that's a little bit funny because it's impossible to not communicate only even Mm -hmm. going silent and, and withdrawing or pouting that's communicating you know criticism is communicating it's about communicating in a way that I can hold on to myself and yet be connected to you, and I can regulate my own emotions while you are being different or you are expressing love in a way that I don't understand. So, it's you know, people have to, they come in saying, I need communication, I need my partner to change. You know, <laughs> it's so interesting um, when, when, they come, when, when a couple comes in, I say, how can I help? They they often cite well you can help by getting him or her to do X Y Z you know so they they you come in one yes exactly exactly right and I now, think that goes, yeah go ahead go ahead, go ahead. No, no you please please go ahead please go ahead yeah I was going to say this is a very important difference this study came out about 2007 big study that showed 
that three out of four people in the United States no longer believe that marriage is for the bearing and raising of children. We believe it's for personal fulfillment. So that basically represents an idea that I've seen in my practice for years, and that is if you and I are a couple, then somehow I believe it becomes your job to make me happy. And you and I both Mm. know... There's no Mm -hmm. research that says you're going to make me happy ultimately. Happiness is an inside job. Yes, you can make my life miserable. Yes, you can elevate my happiness by being a great partner. But basically, you don't make me happy. It's an inside job. And I think that's another reason why people come in to therapy is they, or come for coaching or come for help is they want the other person to make them happy. They're not looking at the fact that what do I need to do to make myself happy in this relationship? Absolutely. Happiness is an inside job. I, you know, I think that is so profound. And one preventative measure you just mentioned in terms of, you know, measures that couples, individuals really can take to engage, you know, can engage into sidestep some of those most common relationship issues. One of which is really, you know, find, you know, find the ways that you can make yourself happy. What yes. other what other preventative measures might there be for someone who is really saying, okay, you know, looking at these patterns that, you know, that you see, yes. you know, on a regular basis, what can I do to mitigate the chances of getting in that situation? So one is the happiness. Any, anything else that um, you might say in terms of sort of some concrete things someone might do to just, like, you know, mitigate, prevent something? This is a very unpopular answer, but research is so clear about this, Jasbina. Here it is. It has to do with money. The way you manage money, the way you are, you know, the way you live either within or beneath your means, money is a secret assailant of relationships. Money issues cloud everything. It's, it's, it, it sounds very crass to be talking about it because we'd much rather talk about, you know, love and attention and romance and and um, and and the, how exciting it is to be together and how we communicate. But money, because it's connected to security, is mm-hmm. so very mm-hmm. important. And, and it doesn't mean you have to be rich to be happy. We know, you know, but what we know is that. We have to be responsible, and you have to look at that within and before you get into a relationship. Um, another secret, which is really big, is oftentimes, and this has to do with your, the stages of love, oftentimes when we meet someone, we focus on characteristics that immediately attract us and we're thinking short term instead of long term. Mm-hmm. And uh and I think, you know, when we talked about that romantic love, that falling in love, what most people yeah. don't realize is it's not always love at first sight. Some of the best relationships start with a friendship that somewhere down the line that becomes a spark and all of a sudden you're jealous because your quote unquote friend went to the movie with somebody else. So so mm. don't discount those friendships, those good relationships, because some of the best relationships, the ones that go long-term and are happy, start out with good people, really good people, that maybe it wasn't that 
excitement in the beginning, but it doesn't mean that spark can't ignite somewhere down the road. Um, so I think that I think that's extremely important too. The other thing, and you you mentioned it, but I just want to highlight it is. The greatest predictor of how happy you're going to be after you're in a committed relationship is how happy you were before you got in the to begin with. I sort of set everyone up for success, right, when we find someone who's happy to begin with. Yes. So, um, yes. you know, it's so interesting. Now, I'm going to switch, switch gears entirely on you, and I want to talk about infidelity for a second, right? Because okay. I'm sure yes. you've seen uh-huh. in, in your practice. So of course. What, what do you think are some of, the, some of the most, you know, common reasons for infidelity in the first place? Yeah. Well, first of all, let me dispel a myth. The, okay, okay. Myth, the myth, misunderstanding and a myth is that it only happens in bad relationships, that there must be mm-hmm. something wrong with the relationship. If your partner were doing his or her job, then there would never be infidelity. That's just not true. First of all, what predicts infidelity? The answer is proximity. Being face-to-face with somebody with whom you have chemistry and not understanding if I follow that chemistry, then the pleasure and reward part of my brain is going to take over and the rational part of my brain is not going to be in charge anymore. So so infidelity, why do people do it? It feels good. That's why, I mean, for the most part, mm-hmm. that's why people mm-hmm. do it. And they, and they underestimate the power of that chemistry to move you in a direction you would never go if you were in your quote unquote rational mind. We you know, a study, for example, that came out of Rutgers University shows that people who are infatuated under the influence of chemistry mm-hmm. have first of all the the pleasure and reward part of the brain, system of the brain, is running the show. And there's little or no blood flow going to the neocortex, which basically means you're not making rational decisions. And so one of the major reasons for infidelity is, you know, you're with somebody at work, you, you you did a project together, it felt good, this person compliments you, they understand you, and you're texting around work, and then the next thing you know you're texting after work, and then you're sharing the best mm-hmm. part of your day, and then all mm-hmm. of a sudden you're looking forward to those texts more than you are your partner's texts, and and you get caught up in the euphoria of it, and you think there's nothing wrong with it because nothing physical has happened. <clears throat> but mm-hmm. but what physical has happened, we can show with a functional MRI, and that is your brain has changed. And this means your brain now associates this partner, the affair partner, because I de- I, my definition of affair is where there's secrecy and chemistry there's infidelity. So if you wouldn't okay. want your partner to know how euphoric you get with that particular text or email or SMS, you know, whatever, that's a secrecy. That, that your partner doesn't have access to this information. Mm-hmm. Because openness and honesty 
and sharing takes away the 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 um, the excitement of it, you know, the terror of it. So I think infidelity can happen in good relationships. There's accidental infidelity. There's actually repeated infidelity. There are people for whom monogamy is really a lot more difficult just because it's not their natural inclination. I'm not saying they can't be monogamous. But yeah. it's not their natural inclination. Some of us are just so monogamous. One date, and we can't date anybody else until we let this one run its course, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we know yeah. that there is a D- DNA, genetic predisposition toward <laughs> monogamy. You know, it, it's not called the sure. monogamy gene. The researchers just stopped short before they named it that. This was a st- Swedish study. But... We know that for some people it's easier than others. That's why you should really look at somebody's track record. If monogamy is important to you, that exciting man, that exciting woman who's had many, 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 many partners, you might just say, okay, they're great for a date, but would I want him or her for a mate? So you have to take that into consideration. Um, There are cases where... You know, there's no sex in the relationship, and you go outside for sex. There are mm-hmm. cases where it really is a compulsivity. You know, there are people who can be compulsive about sex because they use it to lower their stress. They use it to to get a high. They they it's it's about the chase. It's about the finding mm-hmm. the perfect partner, and there that is a compulsive process. For some people who are given to that more, they have more of that addictive personality. You know, just like for some people, they can drink a glass of wine or two and no problem. And for others, they know one glass leads to four. So, you know, we do have personalities that are more prone to compulsivity. And uh, so there are many, many reasons for infidelity. And for some, it's just fun. It's recreation that the idea of having many partners is just part of the pleasure of life. So, you know, it's so many reasons, but the problem is with infidelity is when you make a commitment to someone and you get Mm -hmm. attached to that person, that person becomes your safe haven. And when your partner has been unfaithful, the very person who's supposed to be there to comfort you is now the enemy. Now the person is part of the hurt and not the healing. And that's what makes it so difficult to recover. And and by the way, you remember we are we are we are um we we are designed to be in relationship. You know, you don't have to be in a committed mm-hmm. love relationship, but we need friends. We are kin people, we're tribe people. And so we have to, our security is based upon having these attachment figures in our life, throughout our life, and that's connected to our survival. You know, uh, one woman or one man alone out on the Kalahari didn't last very long. And so our survival is connected to relationship. And so when you threaten that primary relationship, that feels like I'm going to die. That's why if your partner's unfaithful, you feel like you're going to die because in your old brain, you are going to die because that part of your brain connected to survival is atemporal. It's without the concept of time. It doesn't know you've grown up. 
So this is why there's a, no small issues when it comes to your sur- your survival partner. So infidelity, it feels better <laughs> when you're having the affair than when your partner is being unfaithful. I mean, that's I know that's an understatement, but it just feels yeah. like you're going to die. You know, given that, given, you know, and that's, that's so helpful in terms of you really kind of walking through just what it is that really strikes people, right, when when that happens. Do you, I'm sure you've seen cases where, like you said, it's really difficult to recover from that, but I'm wondering if you've seen cases where couples have been able to, and if so, um, you know, how, how have you seen that happen? Like, you, do you believe that trust can be restored, that yeah. that kind of faith in the world? And it's oh, yeah. so... You know, I'm, I'm sure there. You know, everyone's in a unique situation. But what any patterns in terms of seeing if that's you know possible, and if so, what kind of can be done at that point for someone who really, you know, maybe they put themselves in that category of this is accidental, like or what have you, or I was kind of carried away. But um, so what? Uh, what? What? What can one, a couple, you know, the partners? What can they do in that situation where they are? you know, in that situation when fidelity okay. did yeah. make a breach. Yeah. yeah. First of all, lots of good books are written on this, um, just outstanding books. One of my colleagues, okay. Janice Abrams Spring, has written one of the better ones, okay. Stephen Stosny. Okay. But let's just say of the couples who seek help with what I would just call garden variety um garden variety infidelity, you know, okay, just okay. normal, not not addiction, not compulsivity. Okay, let's just say infidelity. Most get, not only get through it, they get better. There's two mm, relationships. Okay. You know, where they say where a bone is broken, it fuses stronger. So there is so much hope and so much help available, and you don't have to go and stay a lifetime in therapy or counseling or coaching. I mean, you really can get through this, and you really can begin to understand that, yes, it was a breach in the relationship, but it was an individual choice, and it doesn't have to mean that this relationship is over. Um, You do, so, you know, and and, and actually there, there are defined steps they're they're reasonable steps, and it doesn't mean you have to wait years to feel better or to be to build solid trust again. And 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 this is an issue that trained individuals can manage very artfully. So don't be if you're ever going to seek help, this is a good time to seek help. Okay, wonderful. So if both, I, I, you know, for me, then it becomes if both partner, partners are motivated to continue yes. the relationship, then there are yes. plenty of measures they can take, and there's, yes. you know, a raft of available. Wonderful. Okay, now in your speaking about atemporal, I think there's a lot of timeless um, wisdom in your book, The Truth About Love. But what's interesting, you discussed tips for neo-traditional, for the neo-traditional model of marriage, which, you yeah. know, was prevalent at that time and is even more so today. Um, yes. It takes even more form than when your book first came out, I believe. So yes. let me just quickly discuss the models. What's just a couple? I know you have many, but just a couple of the tips you had mentioned. Like I said, I think it's even, you know, even more so prevalent today yes. to have, it is. you know. So what, yes. um, yeah, what would you, what are a couple, there's so many in there, but just a couple of tips that you might mention to, you know, 
I think the majority of people who are in these relationships. So, yeah, what's, in terms of yeah. navigating those relationships and, you know. Well, in, in, in relationship research, <laughs> almost since research began, one element predicts happiness over the decades, and it's flexibility. And okay. and I think flexibility, especially in the roles that two people take in a relationship. One of the reasons why gay and lesbian relationships are strong and have such a good track record is because the roles are not established because they you can be flexible about the role. And and mm-hmm. we know if if you look at marriage research right now, it's a bimodal curve meaning that there are two big groups that cluster around happiness in relationship. The first group what the second group is overall marital happiness is down. We're not as happy in our relationships as we were at one time. But the second group is when marriages and relationships are good, they're better than ever. And the reason why they're better than ever is they're more equitable. They're more fair. They're more flexible. It does, you know, that we can change role around the the, the breadwinner, and and we now know that that household chores are being shared more equally. It's not quite equal yet. Mm-hmm. Childcare is mm-hmm. being more equal, and so if you want a tip, that's a big one. And guess what? Men are changing their attitudes more quickly than women are. A man now views a woman's earning power as a positive mate selection criteria. Women, yeah. it's 51%, but they still, almost half of women, still want a man, their partner, to make more money than they do, even though they're more successful and they're better educated, mm-hmm. you know. So we mm-hmm. have to be, so flexibility is a big, is a is a really good piece of advice. Secondly is there there are so many now workshops about uh, relationship education. I mean, I think that relationships, my bias is they're more difficult today because the stress is greater and the expectations are greater. And when you put those two, those two elements together, I think it makes it, makes it tougher. So, it does, so I think don't be afraid to seek help. I guess that's my second piece of advice. Okay, wonderful. Um, you know, the flexibility, that being key, I absolutely um, and, you know, that's so interesting. You can see that flexibility that in a person as you're getting to know them, which is, you know, like the, the discovery of you can, that reveals ability to be flexible with another and to meet each other's needs. So I think that is, um, you know, very important. And, you know, it's just to get to, uh, to um, this one question that you mentioned that you've been asked many times, and um, it's funny you say you mentioned asked it sometimes when there's like 30 seconds left to go, but you've been asked this question, which is how can we create satisfying love that will last a lifetime? But your answer to this question is, you know, I think quite profound. So what? how is it then everyone on the line who wants to know how to create satisfying love that will last? What, 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 what would you tell them? What I always yeah. say is, Find out what says I love you to your partner Mm -hmm. and give it as a gift. No strings attached. Because love Mm. is a verb. Love is about loving. And there are people who believe, and I'm one of them, 
the love that you feel is the love that you give. And I know that sounds trite, but there's years of research that backs that up. The love that you feel is the love that you give. Well, speaking of giving um, in terms of what your partner wants, I know you, you talk in your book about couples where, and, and this is quite common actually, where one partner has a greater interest um, in, in sex yeah, than the other. And, you know, this, this can be a common issue for many couples. So what a couple tips, you know, that you had, um, that you mentioned in terms of what a couple can do in that, in that situation. First, no, they're not alone. There are many couples in that situation. But, two, what, what can they do about that? What, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, could, <laughs> we could talk a whole, a long time about this one. Um, yeah. So, first of all, you've got to find out what the bottom line is. You know, when I say mm-hmm. to couples, well, do you all want to be sexual, you know, then generally speaking they say, yes, yes, of course. It's, the question usually isn't will we, it's, 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 it's how. It's not when, it's not even if we will be sexual, it's how you get there. And, and right. then if you look at people, you know, I, I wrote a whole book about this called Hot Monogamy, which is about you have to understand your own desire, you have to be responsible for your own desire. doesn't mean you do it all yourself, but if I don't know what sparks my desire, how can I tell my partner, you know? So, again, it goes back to that find out what says I love you and give it as a gift. I would say find out what sparks your desire and you become responsible. Now, having said that, if you both want to be sexual, if you both want a healthy sexual relationship, this is my best advice, and I have to tell you, I'm sorry it's right here at the end and I can't go on to about it very long, but um, it, my best advice is this. If you both agree that sex is important to your relationship, and here's the question you should ask, not what do I want, what you want, but what is best for the relationship? So if you decide mm-hmm. the relationship really needs and deserves a healthy, robust sexual relationship, then I say... The answer should always be yes. But as the person who has, you know, what I would call uh, more of a sexy brain than sexy body, meaning that I have to have my stress lowered, I have to feel connected to my partner, you know, the people, we sort of come in two varieties sexually, the sexy body, sexy brain. Some people walk around, they're ready for sex all the time. The second person walks, you know, walks around and my stress has to be lowered. I have to feel connected to you. You have to be truly kind to me or my my desire level just won't even show up. It's not an excuse. It truly is a biological fact. And so if I say, okay, you say when and I say how. There are many, many ways to be sexual, but you should never let sex be a tug of war in a relationship. And perhaps sometime you and I can talk about this for a long, long time. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I know. And one of the times I want to end with your top three tips to single searching for a life partner. What would those be? Oh, here they are. First of all, do what it takes to know yourself. There are three big reasons why people don't make a good match. One, they don't know they don't know themselves. Okay, so do mm-hmm. whatever that takes: reading, you know, workshops, talking to people, getting good feedback. Second is, you better take time to know that other person. 
statistically, it does take time. And, yes, you and I all know people who love at first sight. They married happily ever after. But for the most people, that doesn't work that way. So take time to really know that other individual. And we're talking, you know, months and long time, not just not just days. And the third thing is you've got to know what makes relationships work. Because it is it is com- more complex today. There are skills, and there's such good information out there. So, you know, my best thinking often gets me in trouble. I need a board of directors and some people <laughs> that I can trust because research mm-hmm. says your friends and your family actually can see more objectively than you can when it comes to relationships. So thank you so much. Well, thank you so much, Pat. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for sharing so many great insights with our listeners. And in case you joined us late and would like to share the show with people in your life, I'd like to remind you that today's radio show will be archived and available as a podcast on Intersections Masters' website, which is www.intersectionsmasters.com. Pat, do you have a website you'd like to share with our listeners as well? Yeah, it's very simple, patlove.com. It's very simple, P-A-T-L-O-V-E, patlove.com. Wonderful. Well, appreciate your hanging out with us, and make sure to join us for next show. Take care, everyone. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. Thank you so much, Pat.